Thank you all for tuning in. The following is a presentation of Bald Spots Productions. Be sure to like, comment, and share. You know, subscribe, follow, whatever it is you've got to do to kick that algorithm into gear and help us reach more people. <laughs> you might sit inside your humble ass Joining me, oh no, I'm getting an echo. Uh, joining me from more than acceptable safe social distances are my guests for today. From all the way in Vegas is Chris Walker. How are you doing, Chris? Doing great. Thanks for having me. And joining us from uh, from the mystical land of Portugal is the man. Oh no, wait, not Portugal, the man. Uh, Sean Weisbrot. How are you doing, Sean? Yeah, I'm good. Cheers. <laughs> okay. Um, no, uh, glad to have you uh, both on. Of course, uh, you know, with this being a, a roundtable, I want to invite you to talk to each other, talk to me. We'll talk back and forth. It'll uh, we'll, we'll have a good time. Um, that is, of course, the uh, the main point of uh, of doing this and uh, getting uh, everybody getting to know you uh, in a slightly different way. Um, but uh, the first question I always ask everybody is, what are you reading? So uh, we'll start with uh, we'll start with Sean. Sean, what are you reading? I currently do not have a book that I'm reading, uh -oh. but I do spend a lot of time every day. Well, I spend a lot of time every day looking at what's happening around the world. So okay. I'm focused more on geopolitics and sure. Uh, sometimes I get into macroeconomics and nice. uh, localized history, things like that, trying to understand how what's happening in the world may uh, affect things that I'm interested in or things that I'm invested mm -hmm. in. So not no books, but um, right, right. Yeah. Okay, no, that's cool. I, I love uh, I love uh, economics. Um, it's uh, it's a little uh, little hobby of mine that I'm not spending a lot of time with right now because I'm actually going to school uh, to uh, in a concentration uh, called marketplace ministry, um, which combines the usual classes of, uh, of divinity with uh, business and journalism and a bunch of other stuff, and uh, I found it interesting. And uh, um, and so I decided to go for it. But uh, uh, but yeah, geopolitics. Um, so tell me, uh, in your opinion, are we headed to World War Three yet? Depends on how you look at it. <laughs> I would like to think no. Okay. So so I lived in China for ten years, and I lived in Vietnam for four, and now in Portugal for one. Oh wow! So I have a pretty keen understanding of the Chinese psyche, and. I left because the current leader, Xi Jinping, made me and a lot of other people feel very uncomfortable living in China. Mm. So I know that China is smart enough to not attack the U.S., but mm. China desperately wants Taiwan. Yeah. And the U.S. desperately wants to protect Taiwan, mostly right. because Taiwan is the global semiconducting hub. So... Mm. What the U.S. is trying to do right now is build its own localized manufacturing, which will take years. It's, it's five years and probably 50 to 100 billion dollars of investment just to get it up and wow. running. China is also trying to build its own inside the mainland, but the U.S. is trying really hard to prevent it from doing so. So there's a conflict there. Um, and then you've got Russia and Ukraine. You've got Israel. 
um, versus Lebanon and Hamas yeah. uh, inside Gaza and the West Bank. And Iran potentially, uh, Iran has threatened Israel. So I, I think if, if Iran were to attack Israel, it would force the U.S. to get involved. But yeah. right now, China's trying to draw the U.S. attention towards the, you know, towards Southeast Asia, and Russia's drawing the U.S.'s attention and money into Ukraine, and Hamas and Iran are drawing the U.S.'s attention to Israel. Whether this is the beginning of a World War III, I'm not really capable of saying yet, but what I can see is that there's several large, powerful countries that are trying to spread the U.S. thin to test the U.S.'s ability to defend itself and its allies. Maybe that's in the, maybe that's for the purpose of seeing if they were to attack uh, U.S., uh, you know, things that the U.S. values, uh, whether they could properly defend them um, globally, you know, maybe, maybe they can, maybe they can, I'm not really sure. But, okay. uh, you know, it's it's very obvious that uh, the U.S. is putting a lot of money into aid in Taiwan, or not really Taiwan, but selling things to Taiwan, buying things from Taiwan, as well as providing aid to Israel and Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and having the U.S. position its military assets in the, the Mediterranean near to Israel and in Taiwan um, is also making it, it very stretched. So uh, not sure about World War Three yet. But, but we have quite the buffet um, of, uh, of choices. <laughs> we have quite the buffet before us, and, uh, yeah. and we're trying to overeat. So I think if if Russia were emboldened to attack somewhere like Poland, mm -hmm. you'd probably see World War Three pretty fast because NATO would be forced to respond. Right. Um, if Iran were to attack Israel. It would draw the U.S. in, which would probably escalate pretty fast. And if China attacked Taiwan and the U.S. didn't have the semiconductor fabs ready, mm -hmm. it would probably force the U.S.'s hand there as well. Mm -hmm. So anything is possible, but we're not there yet. Not quite. Not to the tipping point. So, okay. No, but well, uh, every day is more dangerous. Everybody? Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. But, uh, um, okay. Um, and then uh, you, uh, uh, is your main thing your podcast or uh, um, or is, uh, is there something else you're working on right now? So I have a consulting service. I'm helping companies that are grossing at least $5 million a year to optimize their costs because a lot of companies severely mismanage their finances. Mm. And so... You know, there's a lot of companies looking to sell or they're looking to stay relevant or they're looking to invest in new growth. And so now's a really great time when the markets look pretty shaky. So uh, I do yeah. that. And I also angel invest in uh, other service agencies and consulting firms that can launch their products or their service quickly and, and uh, not need additional revenue. So they're not going to be a billion dollar company. They're not going to go public. They may never even get acquired by somebody else, but they can right. provide significant dividends in the long term. Cool. Okay. That, uh, yeah. that would definitely uh, keep you busy. Okay. Uh, Chris, who are you reading? Yeah. So actually I'm taking a break from reading right now as I'm actually in a writing stage. I'm actually working on two more books. Uh, which normally I try to do them one at a time, but I've got two different projects that came up kind of uh, in the same light. So 
working on them back and forth a little bit is definitely interesting for me. Certainly trying to, uh, it's, it's putting a big strain on my time management, trying to make sure I can actually <laughs> give everything the attention it needs. Um, but I would say that if I'm, if actually, I'm, uh, as I do that, it's, uh, most of the reading I'm doing has to do with research and, uh, studying in light of those projects. So, uh, one book is actually the continuation of uh, the first book I ever wrote. I'm actually writing the sequel to that finally and um, deciding on whether or not I'm going to actually conclude it or keep it open for more because uh, there is still potentially more to the story. Uh, and then the second one is actually a little bit more direct. But what I'm doing with this one is kind of taking my a little bit more uh, military intelligence background approach towards the mm -hmm. topic of eschatology, which has certainly been a huge topic for a lot of people lately with uh, things spurning up in the Middle East. So, sure. and actually, uh, just want to actually give a compliment to Sean, because I do think that your assessment of uh, a lot of the geopolitical breakdown was was very accurate. So, uh, even as in a guy who worked in the intelligence community, you're, you're pretty spot on for most of that. You know, most of the stuff is just a uh, a chess game. Believe it or not, most big countries don't actually want wars. Um, we know that it's incredibly costly. It's very difficult to manage. Uh, once it gets to an actual war, it becomes very hard to control it. So usually what we're trying to do is maintain the objectives and push the agendas without it having to escalate to that level. And that's why it's kind of a tap dance uh, between the different parties, because nobody really wants to commit to what actual warfare costs uh, on all sides, uh, especially since when you talk about World War III, uh, it wouldn't be hard to see that the uh, the battle lines would be basically NATO and the United States between most of the Western, uh, excuse me, most of the Eastern countries and uh, a lot of the stuff out of Asia, uh, with Africa ironically being probably where a good portion of the more uh, inclandestine operations taking place because there's some uh, real assets in yeah. Africa that everybody's trying to gain a hold of. So it's interesting, but it, it's like this big chess game that everybody's trying to put everybody in a checkmate without losing their pieces. <laughs> and <laughs> once you commit to a war, it's really hard to not lose all your pieces. You're going to be, you're going to be committing everything. So yeah. I think your breakdown was very well uh, stated. So I would agree actually context of world war three. Um, it's not outside the realm of feasibility that it could escalate to that, but I, you know, there is, there are going to be uh, checks and balances that people are going to be trying to take to decide whether or not they're going to escalate that far. Uh, and the cost is going to have to be pretty heavy for someone to finally push it that hard. Because, yeah, you were, uh, you were military intelligence, weren't you? Yeah, I was an intelligence agent for the Army for quite some time. I joined in 2000, and by the time I got done, I had uh, served in, I don't even know, probably more than 20 countries. Uh, wow. I probably. I've seen operations on three continents and what's funny is I don't speak a lick of any language other than English. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah. it does, you do get to, uh, when you, when you do get to live among a population and you get to kind of see how, uh, how they live just as a culture, it does speak a lot to their mindset and to their, their goals and their objectives. And truth is most people really aren't trying to push for a huge full-scale war, but uh, there are definitely opposing forces that people are not, you know, not happy with. Uh, China and America on the economic stages are probably still the two biggest uh, pushes against each other. And 
Russia, the, the whole thing with Ukraine was really quite simple. I know a lot of people are trying to figure it out. It was, but as Ukraine was getting ready to become part of NATO, Russia was never going to let a NATO country on their border. It's really that simple. Yeah, it looks like uh, looks like Russia might have bit off more than they can chew. Um, they're definitely having troubles uh, well, and that's, getting what they want out of it. Unfortunately, it's kind of the lesson of the 20th century when people are I, trying I to even anything after World War II. You know, Korea was something that was had no real ending to it. Vietnam was a war that was supposed to be quick and easy, and it turned into you know one of the longest wars America's ever fought, as well as the Vietnam people have been fighting. We were just one of many people that they had been fighting in a, in a long chain of issues, and that still stems from World War II. Uh, and then as you go into a lot of the smaller conflicts, I mean, the point is warfare's changed from what mm -hmm. most people still consider warfare to be in like the terms of what we used to, you know, Everybody would fight until there was a treaty signed and then everybody would just go their own separate ways and things all changed for whatever the new course is. That's not how it works anymore. Once you commit to something, it's it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to change anything other than you're going to be committing a lot and hoping that you can at least push the needle in the direction you want and then still maintain it even when you pull the troops out, which is we've seen it ourselves. It's not how it works anymore. You were going to say something, Sean? I was going to say... I think Russia was not expecting the level of support that Ukraine would receive from the global community. And I think he underestimated Zelensky's ability as an orator. I'd agree with both of those. And I think okay. if the previous administration before Zelensky were still in charge, Ukraine would have probably fallen very fast. Hmm. Interesting. I'm not sure. That one, I'm not sure. It's hard to say how you know, that's one of the things that it's always weird when it comes to the leadership of who's in charge at certain things and the decisions they make. Um, I've learned that you just trying to anticipate who's going to make what choices is actually kind of a fool's errand. Uh, you'll never really know what someone's going to do with a decision until they're forced with it. So there's no way of really knowing how the previous administration would have handled it. Um, I do think that the previous administration being a little bit more aggressive on their foreign policies probably would have. I think what more than likely what happened was uh, Russia chose to stay off until they saw a, an administration that was going to be a little bit more even keeled. And I don't think they were actually expecting the response that we did give. So I do agree with Sean on that. I don't think that they were expecting as much support as came as quickly as it did. Well, it's interesting that you bring up uh, um, oration. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sean. I was going to say you had also mentioned that you've been to 20 plus countries and don't speak any other languages. It's quite <laughs> uh, interesting for me that you didn't have that kind of instruction. Now, I have a, a, one of my cousins works for the Department of State, and he's been working there for probably 20 years at least now. Mm -hmm. And he's been trained in Arabic and Spanish and right. a few other languages so that, you know, he would have let's say two or three years in country and then he'd go back to DC for a few years. And then he'd, so he'd go in and out just so that they would, I guess the goal is to make sure you don't feel like any one given country is becomes your home and your right. loyalties may shift it, uh, you know, by accident. Um, well, and that's but just also really for, more in-house training. Yeah. To, to answer, I guess the insinuated question, you know, uh, it's really more because of the nature of my work uh, was very designed towards targets as opposed to culture. So my job, as I would transfer in and out of different countries, um, I would usually end up tracing the intelligence and following where it leads. And that's where you'd be bouncing around sometimes. Uh, and so people like, uh, I think you said your brother or your brother-in-law. Um, my cousin. 
your cousin, I'm sorry. So, but yeah, people like that who actually spend that time in there uh, because they have that kind of knowledge base and that kind of ability to communicate a little bit more is, is usually that's why they're the first people I would be linking up with when I would get sent in because yeah. they would be kind of the, so, the safety net. So he is was actually tasked with um, like protecting the ambassadors and the presidents. So he, he you know, he, he was one of the ones that carried the gun and, and would protect them. <laughs> And he he had he protect I think he he protected Condoleezza Rice he's protected Hillary Clinton Bill Clinton when they were outside of the U.S. on on uh, visits to different countries. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah that so. is. Um, but yeah, I was uh, I was thinking it's interesting that you mentioned uh, uh, Zelensky's ability to orate uh, being uh, a part of uh, of what's going on over there. And just uh, just a quick uh, you know glance over uh, over history the the you know top of mind it seems that a lot of countries um, their ability to fight has to do with uh, with their leaders' ability to speak well um, you know I mean we uh, we look back and uh, um, you know World War II uh, obviously a, a battle of the orators um, you know you got uh, you got uh, uh, Hitler's ability to uh, to speak well and drum up his people's support uh uh churchill and uh um and roosevelt both uh being uh being skilled orators and being able to drum up their support um you know and uh and even going back as far as uh, the american civil war and uh and lincoln's ability to uh to orate um you know, am am I just missing something, or or could it be that uh, uh, that a leader's ability to speak has a uh, a, a very vital role in uh, in a in a country's ability to uh, to sustain war? Go ahead, Sean. I want to hear your take. <laughs> well, I was going I, I I was going to break it down into two parts. One is their ability to to collect their thoughts put them together and express them in, a, in a, a way that people can become emotionally charged. The other is the emotional empathy to be able to understand if their people are willing to tolerate at that given point in time. And when you have a country that's being attacked by another country, like Ukraine was, their backs are against the wall. The citizens of Ukraine will die to protect their country, right? Anytime a country is attacked, their people will throw their lives away to stop the invasion. And Vietnam is a fantastic, uh, a fantastic uh, example of this. As you had mentioned, it was a very prolonged war. In my mm -hmm. mind, it should have never happened, but that's a different story. Um, yeah. And at the time, you didn't really have – I don't think for the Vietnam War, you had a very good leader who was able to motivate the people because there were so many people that were anti-war. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was because he wasn't a good leader or he wasn't a good orator, right? And I think a lot of people were like, why are we even there? What are we doing there? Mm -hmm. Right? But when you, when you look at Zelensky – He's like, I'm going to be assassinated if I don't say something, right? If I don't get my people to fight, if I don't go to the UN, if I don't go to the U.S. Congress and convince people why 
they need to support us. So Zelensky has this incredible ability to understand the needs of his people and the needs of his country and other people's desire to not see Putin get his way. And so I think he's very capable and therefore he's been able to get you know, support for a long period of time in order to keep his country going. I would have to agree. Um, I, I think with Zelensky, the biggest uh, ally that he had was in his initial messages. Um, as the war broke out and they started trying to defend themselves, they didn't call for aid in terms of we need NATO to send troops. We need U.S. soldiers. We need uh, you know the British Air Force here. But they didn't say any of that. They were very smart about what they said. They said, if you provide the money and the weapons, we'll provide the soldiers. That's exactly what most allying countries would actually want to hear because they don't mind aiding a cause, but what they don't want to do is commit their sons and daughters to it. Yeah. And that was exactly his message. I think he was very well, uh, I think it was actually very calculated and very well executed that basically all he was saying was, if you can give us the means to fight them, we will. And in the process of doing that, uh, what it showed was their willingness to take on the, the big dog, which of course in America, we love the underdog story. Uh, so just by, he kind of knew the psychology of who he was talking to before he opened his mouth. So I got to give him a lot of props. He, he, he did a very good job about knowing what message was going to stick, how to deliver it. He himself barely delivered it uh, internationally anyway. He purposely chose to let his ambassadors and his representatives uh, carry those messages to the people who've been already working and building those relationships. He, he used his cards very well. So I do have to say that he played correctly in that context. And I think where Putin really had this problem, especially in the early stages, was they were unable to truly villainize their enemy as the Ukrainians are as bad guys. Uh, which made it very difficult for even people in Russia to say, why are we fighting this? You know, we, we get that there's probably some political gain here, but as far as is it worth risking my sons or my daughters, there was hesitation in the initial stages. Uh, and they've had to kind of work uh, hard internally with their own public relations to kind of make that statement now that uh, we do need to win this war and it's something that we need to fight. But they've had to ramp that up. And if they had... Uh, been able to accomplish that beforehand, their soldiers might have been more motivated about winning it in the initial stages, which means they wouldn't have had time to prolong it. So, I mean, there, but again, this is this, as we nitpick it apart, it's really difficult. But the only thing I'm trying to use as an example here is that I do think, to your point, being able to air, uh, narrate the story, being able to tell the message correctly does play a huge factor. Uh, it's the same reason why uh, since we used the Vietnam War as an example, that's a good example there. As it started, there was an initial probably about 50-50 split, whether or not it was a good idea, but that was enough to get things rolling. Uh, and as it started ramping up, people initially started trying to be supportive of it, but the longer it took, the more the support drew away. And what you'll see during that same time period is you'll see a lot of uh, leadership changes because we're a country that, you know, our president's only going to be in office for four years at a time, uh, which... And, you know, when we think about that four-year segment, we would think that it's just, okay, four years this, and then if he gets reelected, it's another four years. But the reality is most presidents won't make bold decisions and kind of risky decisions, even if they're necessary, until their second term in office because they don't mm -hmm. want to risk uh, making a large <laughs> groundbreaking maneuver in the first season because they want to try for that reelection. So it's interesting to see how our own 
system can actually create these windows of opportunity for people on the other side if there is in fact uh, a gap in our leadership for being decisive and you know again there's i can argue all sides of that argument i'm just trying to statement of what it is it does exist the and the other people who are you know across the pond they they know these and they they can play it out so that's why american elections are such a huge thing you know we're probably the only country in the world that almost the entire world pays attention to how our elections go most people couldn't care less about most other countries internal elections so it's interesting to see that dynamic of it i i like to pay attention to the elections of other countries just because uh, i'm curious to see how they're moving so for example i, I do genealogy for my family and oh, cool. i've been doing it for about 15 years and finally discovered uh, got proof that my father's grandfather my great-grandfather was born in poland mm. and several of his siblings were born in poland and his parents were born in poland and they had several siblings and so it my family was in Poland for a while. And so I started to become interested in Poland in the last few weeks because of that, obviously. Before that, my entire life, I was told we were German. I spent years learning German. I studied abroad in Austria with the host family for a summer. Like I was very heavily involved, uh, interested in, in Germany. And I watched the German elections when I was younger and all of that. All of it was nothing because my family's not even German, but that's a different discussion. Um, <laughs> so, I, so I've been watching Poland now and Poland actually just had an election uh, about 10 days ago. And what was really interesting was that they had this kind of like far right faction that was in charge and they lost. And even though it's a coalition government, as a lot of European countries are, I feel like they're taking Poland in a good direction. I think a lot of people have been concerned for the last eight years that they were not doing uh, something that was good for the country. So I, I'm quite interested in that because Poland was very instrumental in protecting Ukrainians. But Poland is also really deeply concerned about Russia invading, or Belarus, who's now holding Russian nukes. Um, and to my knowledge, uh, some of the Wagner group that's, that remains is still in Belarus as well. So Poland's scared because Poland was basically swallowed up by Germany and Russia several times um, in history. And they just well, want to stay alive. They, they want to, yeah. you know, it's one of the only countries that's been, that's been swallowed up and then regained independence and then swallowed up and regained independence. And through these hundreds of years maintained their culture, despite having oppressors. It's really fascinating to see how strong their will is to, to kind of be independent. So mm -hmm. they're putting a lot of assets, a lot of resources into, uh, building their, um, military, uh, the UN, I think requires 2% of the GDP be put towards defense. And I think they're, they're on track to hit 4%, which is even more, I believe, than the U.S. Wow. Um, so they're, they're putting a lot of energy, a lot of resources into buying uh, military weapons from the U.S. and I believe South Korea. Um, and they're, they're trying to multiply the size of their standing army. But they're also heavily investing in tourism and high technology and uh, building out uh, aviation manufacturing and then trying to get startups in there to build out their um, their kind of secondary um, economy. So it's quite fascinating to see how Poland is responding to Russia and Putin's mm -hmm. threat. Yeah. Well, I can, I can kind of understand why the Poles wouldn't, uh, um, why the Polish people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't want to get taken over again. If I remember right, after World War II, didn't the entire country move like 
several hundred kilometers west. I, and, I don't uh, think it moved. I think Russia just engulfed it. Well, the 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 border, the official borders, said, yeah, uh, the official borders did change uh, quite significantly, if I remember right. But uh, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's From definitely. What a, I understand the been... USSR expanded its borders to be yeah. where Berlin was. Right, right, and uh, yeah, but uh, um, but yeah, they definitely have had a lot of uh, a lot of troubles over the years, and uh, and it seems like they may have learned their lessons about uh, about that. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, um, yeah, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely, uh, see, uh, um, where, uh, where that would be, uh, where the, um, the ability to speak, uh, there to go back again to the, uh, to the thing would be very important. Um, we have a very weak speaker, um, in my opinion, uh, right now here in the U S and, uh, and so getting involved would uh this would be the time to uh i think to uh to do something to make the uh that would make the u.s want to move because we don't have somebody i think that the majority of the country would get behind as far as uh you know if he's if uh if biden said if biden said let's go to war um i don't think he could support it i i don't think uh i don't think he's got that strong of a of a speaking skill behind him to uh to really get, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe Ukraine, because like you said, uh, uh, there, Chris, I think it was, uh, uh, we love the underdog story, but, uh, um, and Taiwan, because we, you know, I mean, there were definitely reasons why we would want to get behind some of these countries, but I don't think as a, uh, a, a that we could depend on Biden to speak us into it, you know, to talk us into it. Biden definitely doesn't have the energy, the, the personal, mm -hmm. the physical, the mental energy to convince people to start a war. Yeah. And I don't think the American public has the stomach for war anymore after mm -hmm. what they saw with the pullout of Afghanistan. Yeah, that's true. And sure. uh, the, the nonsensical wars that we've had for decades. I mean, most of those, yeah. most if not all of those were completely useless and should have never happened and got us to our where we got have this debt now if we hadn't started those wars the debt would not be where it is right um but that's besides the point at the same time i i think we should be more concerned about a civil war than about the u.s as a country going to war against another country see uh i could see that i'm not sure i i, I don't know i could i could see some of the merits in what he says i don't know if i agree with all of it uh but you know i mean Obviously, when September 11th happened, a response was going to be necessary. Where that response led to, I don't know if I would, I think I agree that I don't know if it needed to go all the directions that it went. Um, yeah. But I do think that when somebody puts that large of a, uh, a direct attack against you, that it's got to be responded to in kind. Uh, so, but what that meant as far as then invading Iraq, uh, I don't know. You know, so there, I mean, and this is, so, I mean, we can definitely talk about that stuff for a long time, but I will say that, um, I do believe that internally there's a lot more issues, uh, that the United States needs to resolve more, I think about those areas than they are uh, right now trying to handle our foreign policies. Most of the time when, uh, when we tend to flex, I guess our military might, uh, it usually gets perceived in one of two ways. One of them is whoever we flexed for is always very grateful. 
and whoever we flexed against and anyone who's friends with them immediately views us as this as the world bully. So it's it's interesting to you know there's no way to to run a country and not tick someone off because uh, unfortunately someone's going to be butting heads with somebody at all times. That's just the nature of humanity. Uh, but I do think that. As far as our debt and a lot of the ways things have been run, so I, I would say that in terms of just the the choices made by the leadership as far as where to put money, where to put assets, how long we're supposed to do certain things, and even dictating some of the objectives, uh, I don't think that we've always made the right choices there. I would have to agree. But I do think that the people who made those choices, I do believe they made the best choice they thought was possible for what they had. Um I don't think I agree with their decisions, but that doesn't mean I don't disagree that they at least considered things before they made the decisions they did. Mm. And what's going to lead to, I think, a lot of these issues is going to be in, on the internal side. I don't think America is going to tear itself apart based off of our foreign policy or even based off of our economics, which those are kind of the, the biggest areas that war tends to fall in. I think our sociological issues and our kind of our difference of cultures that are really becoming uh even more heated and skewed are going to be the biggest areas that we're going to have to address internally if we're ever going to kind of unite again behind a, a common cause. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of people who feel that, you know, common causes like that, when we get a, a, a foreign enemy who we can all agree is a problem, tends to unite us for a short period of time, but it never seems to resolve the actual differences that we're, we're dealing with internally. Yeah, I can uh, I can definitely see that the whole uh, well the whole uh, events around uh, around nine eleven really did work to get us all uh, you know together against the common enemy. But you're you're absolutely right; it didn't keep us together. Um, you know, there was there was nothing to keep uh, you know Republicans from uh, uh, from hating Democrats and vice versa, and uh, you know. Uh, you know, but uh, but yeah, that that common enemy um, thing uh, definitely seemed to uh, to get us all uh, in line there for a while, and uh, created some really bad situations. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, um, what uh, well, what would it take to uh, uh, to uh, to get us together again as a country? Yeah, what would uh, what would it take? Are, are we talking about another uh, another terrorist attack uh, to be able to uh, to get uh, uh, California back in line with Arizona and and uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, oh, and Missouri in line with and you know what? I would I would almost want to say I don't know if a, a you know a large terrorist attack or even a direct attack from a foreign nation uh, would actually be enough at this point to unite. Uh, some of the differences that we have. For example, if you do look at uh, the war that just broke out in Israel, mm -hmm. uh, the fact that we have probably just as many people who are supporting the cause for Hamas as we do people who are supporting the cause for Israel kind of speaks to the culture of our own uh, society here is that we, we're really torn on a lot of the issues that uh, really tend to go back to, I think it really spends most of our time going back to worldviews. Uh, I think people are really trying to decide, you know, how we should perceive our own place in this world, uh, not just individually, but culturally as well. And they're coming into conflict with a lot of opposing worldviews. And the problem is when everybody thinks that they're right, 
uh, I think Abraham Lincoln, since you brought him up, he said a quote once that I thought was so well put. He said, both sides of our war are convinced that they're on the side of right. And he said, both sides might be, but one side must be wrong. Because it's really simple. You can't be right and wrong at the same time in a conflict. Right. So the only thing we can know for sure is that there's a lot of people wrong involved. Who is right is something that becomes a real question of worldviews. And I think well, that's why it really do, comes down to it. The people are, who are right are the ones who win because they write yeah. history. I was uh, just historically speaking, I would say that that's how they're going to write it. Yeah. You know, if you ask, because, uh, you know, I've, there's, there's a lot of these counter arguments that you see play out throughout history. For example, when someone's saying, if you're on the side of the current Israel uh, conflict and you're saying, okay, well, I'm, I side with the Israelis because that was their original land. Okay. Well, are you the kind of person then that immediately would turn around and just say, I support giving the native Americans back their original land. They were here first, weren't they? <laughs> You know, so at what point does the arguments become counterproductive to what's going out there? And that's why one of the things I always liked uh, as, as an intelligence guy, as a, as a military guy, we really kind of made it very simple. It doesn't matter what was. What matters is what is and what will be. You have to study what was so you can understand where you are. That's true. But that has nothing to do with trying to bring us to where we're going to go. We have to decide exactly where we're at by looking at it realistically and holistically, good and bad. And then making the decision about where we're going to move together as a whole. And that doesn't happen anymore because one thing that we have seen play out in our own government, there's no such thing as compromise left in our government. You're either all to the left or all to the right. And if you're in the middle, then both sides are just telling you to pick a side. So it's unfortunate because that is the kind of stuff that is the prelude to conflict. Yeah, I see that. You know, I've, I've lived outside of the U.S. for 15 years. So I get to see what's happening in the U.S. from that point of view. Now, I do spend time every year in the U.S., but the vast majority of my time is outside of the U.S. And what I've seen is getting crazy, guys. And the people <laughs> that I talk to, the cultures that I'm around, they think America has lost its fucking mind. Yeah, they're not entirely is wrong. Is, is cussing okay? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying to be family-friendly here. I'm <laughs> censored. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> People come to me and they're like, what the fuck is wrong with you Americans? And I'm like, look, I don't live in America. I just have an American passport. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't vote in any elections. I don't, I don't reside in America. I'm just a passionate observer. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to see is that when I was a kid, I like to think that Bill Clinton was the last sensible president. Mm. I feel like when he was president, the Republicans and the Democrats were capable of working together. Yeah. And after that, everything kind of started falling apart. And I just, I, you, you asked before, what does it need to, ha what needs to happen for Americans to be able to come together again? I'm not sure it's possible. I don't think anything could happen that would make that possible. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong, but it's hard to see that. It, it's it's very difficult to see a post-COVID, post-Trump America that is capable of communicating with one another, seriously. Mm -hmm. I would agree that there's probably a huge communication issue. Uh, and I think that, for example, it's, it's always fun when people kind of point uh, 
point out the kind of hypocrisies in everyone's logic. Uh, I once heard someone say that, you know, if you're far left, you're basically a communist. And then someone says, if you're far right, you're basically a Nazi. And they'll, they'll call each other that. And for the first time in my, you know, history that I can recall of being alive on, you know, for 40 years now, uh, I think they're both right. You know, we've gotten to the point where they're both so extreme that they're not willing to budge anymore. Uh, and you can hear the arguments being played out by both sides in context where it's like, yeah, you guys aren't going to allow for anything. For example, um, in the uh, and the, the kinds of fights that we have now, let me, let me pre preface it with that, are things that we probably never would have even anticipated 10 years ago. Who would have thought we were going to be having a huge fight over the definition of male or female or anything in between? Mm -hmm. uh, fight around that for what was considered to be something that was just kind of a given. Now it's a huge issue across all spectrums. Uh, some people, and it's interesting because what you'll hear is the counterproductive argument when people are saying, we're supposed to all love each other. And if you don't, I'll hate you. Right. It's like, you, you don't even see that the, that you're causing a lot of the issues is in your own mind at the context of you're trying to force something that's supposed to be for good, but your only way of trying to force something that you believe is good is through hate. Well, you're not accomplishing anything. You're not going to win anybody through hate. That's one of the things that, you know, if there was one thing warfare did teach me, you don't win hearts and minds with bullets and bombs. Yeah. Cause those aren't designed for good. No. Those are designed for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to destroy something. Now, how you use those forces is something that, you know, that's, that's going to be a big issue in there. You know, so I'm not a, I'm certainly not the kind of advocate who sits there and says, if we just had no weaponry, everything would be good in this world. Bull crap. People would beat each other with rocks and they would strangle each other. They don't need weapons to kill each other. All right. they need is hate. And if there's one thing, there's no shortage of on this planet. It's hate. Yeah. So that's the only thing I really see kind of doing this is because people don't want to acknowledge certain levels of hate or certain aspects of their own views that what they're doing is they're digging their heels in and saying, if you don't believe like me, then you're obviously an enemy. Well, why can't I disagree with you and still be a friend? Right. What, that, that doesn't exist anymore. Why, why can't we disagree agreeably? You know, it just, uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't happen. Social right. media. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree entirely. Sean just nailed it. Yeah. Social media. I think the communication aspect of modern technology has gotten to a point where because people are not held accountable for their own words as they were, I mean, let's face it. If someone walks right up to your face in like the 1980s when I was in school and somebody came up and pushed you, you hit them back. Yeah. And then all it was, was you went to the office. They, and the only question they had was who started it. Right. It wasn't who got hurt, who initiated the actual conflict. And I remember having bullies that, tried to bully us and then the bullying went away when you socked them in the jaw or you took out their tooth. Suddenly they are not bullying anymore. They learned there's a consequence to those actions, but now we have to make sure that everybody's feeling good. Well, the problem is that we've learned that because we've taken away any aspect of real felt consequence, it means that everything is now done in the realm of words and in words, there's really, we can stir up a lot, but there's no felt consequence until it's too late. Because if there's one element that I've also seen true is that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can start a revolution. Yeah. So you got to, you know, people can hide behind their keyboards now like and never really have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, there's definitely. I'm sorry, say it again, Sean. I didn't oh. hear. But like, like, uh, um, in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they used, uh, Bill, in case you're not aware. Okay. They used yeah. Facebook. I'm not. So some some radical 
uh, this radical. I think he was Buddhist, honestly. Radical I think he was guy. Buddhist. Radical Buddhist. Which is, was quite strange because I've spent That's... years among among Buddhists. So it's very strange. There was this like radical Buddhist. I I, I don't want to say cleric because cleric is really more closer to the Muslim uh, religion. Mm-hmm. But this like this radical Buddhist leader convinced people in Myanmar that the Rohingya Muslims were their enemy. And through Facebook alone, was able to ignite a genocide Wow! over several years. Okay. And there were people that worked for Facebook that were on the ground and people who didn't work for Facebook who were on the ground who went to Facebook and said, guys, you are enabling genocide. You need to start – or you're – enabling the precursor to potential violence you need to do something about this and facebook decided not to do anything about it for years until a genocide started and it's now ongoing for i think it's two or three years now it's been going up a couple years now see and this is where you definitely come into the conflict because there's truth that the words carry power but there's also truth that when you censor people's language that creates a whole different you know, can of worms and it creates a whole nother level of things. In fact, there's often times where people who are screaming absolute rhetoric, once they become censored, they were just considered to be buffoons before. And as soon as they're censored, that almost adds legitimacy to their argument because people are like, Oh, they don't want you to hear this. So, and then everybody starts going on that bandwagon. So it's, it's unfortunate that that's kind of the whole element. That's why, you know, again, with the modern technology, the communication factor is no longer personal. It's something that can be done at a distance, and because of that, it can be done maliciously. Yeah, uh, we. Have, I'm very yeah, fortunate sorry. that when I was in China, we had the. That's okay. uh, I was very fortunate that being in China, we had the Great Firewall, to a point where I wasn't able to access any of these social media platforms while I was oh, wow. there. And so I basically spent all of my 20s and early 30s with no access to social media. And I, to this day, despite living outside of China for, I guess, it's six years now, I do not feel any sort of addiction or desire to touch any social media platform. And I feel quite happy for that. <laughs> I, I know many people that are addicted to these platforms, and I'm like, <laughs> why? Just turn it off. Well, it's, it actually causes the same. They've, they've even done uh, scientific studies where the that little ping or that you know, if someone likes your post or whatever, it actually creates the exact same dopamine as if you took a hit of uh, of a yeah. drug. So mm-hmm. yeah, it is a very addictive concept, and unfortunately, because it's become almost the main tool for communication now, it doesn't matter which platform, just social media in general. Uh, the only way to actually get news in front of people who are trying to need it or to even give warnings about social media, the only place to put it so they'll actually consume it is on the very thing you don't need them on. So, because that's where they're at. That's the only place that they get their information. Yeah. Kind of like when. Uh, so it's kind of this, uh, I mean, for lack of better words, it's almost a checkmate. Yeah. Um, well, it's weird how uh, how people get their uh, their information. It changes so uh, so dramatically from. Era to era, if you uh, if you will, but uh, reminds me of when everybody was getting. Seemed like everybody was getting their news from uh, the Daily Show, and uh, during the John Stewart era, and uh, uh, you know it's like yeah, let's get let's go to Comedy Central for our news, and now it's let's go to TikTok for our news. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, to 
you know, it's like, uh, mm -hmm. it, it is, uh, yeah, the social media and internet, uh, uh, you know, has the ability to protect you from, uh, you know, both, uh, both anonymously, uh, by, by creating an ability to be anonymous. I mean, you're a, a, a username now. You're not even your real name. And, uh, you know, you can, you can say, you know, it's like, uh, I think I put on my, uh, on my Facebook that I'm everywhere. Um, as opposed to saying that I'm in Malden, Missouri. Um, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, there's this, uh, this protection that's, uh, that's afforded. So you can say anything. And to your point, Chris, nobody's going to punch me in my face. Um, because nobody's going to see what I, you know, because they're no, they're, they don't even know who I am. Um, you know, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's crazy. So in China, the uh, government forces people to use their real uh, uh -huh. identification. So they, they force you to verify your identity whenever you create a, a, an account on wow. any platform, on Chinese pl uh, platforms. So that way you know mm. who they are. And so the government can monitor right. everyone. They, they know exactly who you are, where you live, and what you're saying when you say it. And they know where you are when you say it. And, and so, if they don't uh, like uh, it, they can stop you. Or they well, can and that's pick where, Sean, I'd actually then ask the question, do you feel that's that's a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, that's a very difficult <laughs> question to answer because it is. there's, there's there, well, there, there's two ways to look at it, right? So one of the things you have to understand is that I, I lived there for 10 years. And so it's a huge part of my identity because I'm only 37 and I moved there when I was 20. I just turned 22. So it was my first country as an adult, my first job out of university, right? So it's a very deeply ingrained part of my personality and who I am. And so in some ways I can identify with the way they run things and why they do it. But there's also that American side of me that goes, this is absolute bonkers. So on one hand, I understand it. On the other hand, I go, I, I don't like it, but it makes sense to have people verify who they are because there are real life repercussions for saying mm -hmm. stupid stuff. But at the others, on the other hand, there's people that are saying real things, trying to help the society get better, and then they get purged for speaking the truth. So it's it's a good thing in the right hands. It's a bad thing in the mm -hmm. wrong hands. I would agree with that that assessment, and then that falls back to the original conflict that uh, always has: who's the right person to monitor that, and how do you make sure that they're got oversight? Never. A that's government. a difficult. Well, well, there's name a government on this planet that's not self-serving. I mean, it's there's no government that's going to try and make sure everything is done for its own benefit. And in the context of good or bad, when it's done for the government's own benefit, what if that means that it hurts people within their government or it hurts people within their country? If it's for the good of the government, maybe it's fine. And that's a view that is held by a lot of people today, especially it's always funny to I have found it very interesting when people talk of, uh, since we're kind of in the geopolitical arena, when people in America are specifically trying to point out that, no, 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 we're, we're in a favor of democratic socialism as opposed to just socialism. And the first question you have is, you know, have you, do you understand socialism? 
And if so, how does democracy right. work with it? You, you don't get to have those two. That's kind of like saying, I'm going to have oil and water and they will mix. No, they're not going to mix. There's just something in there that's going to tear it apart because there's certain elements about them that don't work together. I think America is far more to the right as a whole, as a, as a, a nation, mm -hmm. than people realize. I think it's, it's moved to the, in that direction. Yes, a lot more than it used to be. Well, I think that has a lot to do, again, it, it's, again, it, whether it's America or any other country, the real simple thing is uh, for short-term gain of power for anybody who's trying to actually gain that, the more comfortable you can make the regular people, the more power you'll gain quickly. The only difference is how you accomplish that and what does that do over the long term. And most of the time, uh, a population in general usually does not care about the long-term repercussions. They just want the immediate comforts. As long as you're willing to give those, they'll give you support. And then when the support starts fading, that's where you start running into problems. And that's usually where the name blame starts coming. Oh, well, actually, we were doing everything fine until that other guy. Because, for example, I very much do tend to lean more conservative with a lot of my views. But in the conservative viewpoint, uh, they would love to say that Ronald Reagan is one of the greatest presidents that's ever been. But economically speaking, when they talk about Reaganomics – uh, it did make things easier for the normal person down low, but the, the, if you want to find a launch pad that immediately started us down our road to debt, yeah. it happened in that era. The way that it got shifted and our debt that we've been continually gradually you know, accumulating more and more and more on top actually started in the Reaganomics era because of the changes that were made. So what we're seeing now are some of the long-term effects of what that did. And people are kind of, you know, again, it's just the, they were good with the, the short-term things. They attribute it to who it was at the time. They're like, okay, things were good under Reagan. Things were good under Clinton. Uh, and Clinton probably was at, when America was at the height mm -hmm. of economics, was probably in the late 90s. Yeah, I was going to say, didn't, didn't Clinton uh, balance the budget and get rid of a deficit? Wasn't he like the only it, president he, that ever he got, like, did he got it about? balanced. He got to where we were starting to move the needle in the other direction. Uh, and if things had continued the way that they were supposed to, and this is an element that a lot of people don't grasp, but when the uh, attacks on September 11th actually did occur, one of the factors that they were taking into effect with their choices of targets and how they were going to hit these areas was the economics, because they knew that we were such an um, economically sound and strong country that if they could change things up, we could start moving the needle back in the other direction and start pushing us further into debt. And it worked. Because not only did we respond economically to certain areas, but obviously militarily and other areas that then required more spending. And so, yeah, it accelerated us heading down the other direction. So you could almost say that they're to one effect, they probably succeeded at one of the goals that they were trying to do, which was to start making the mm -hmm. American dollar less. Less, not by less. Well, for example, how much is a gallon of milk? Yeah, exactly. How much is a gallon of milk now as opposed to that's what it was before, before the war started? You mean and that's not regular the inflation. Of the dollar. You got it. So, and the gas prices, things like that. That's why, you know, the energy crises that people have been talking about. And then this is one of the things that Trump supporters were in favor of because he was trying to push uh, for more internal forms of our, uh, of our energy consumption. Um, I mean, these are all things that, it's, you know, people want to try and nitpick, I guess, certain topics. But the thing is, it's not just as simple as topic A solved and moved on, topic B solved and moved on. They're all intertwined with each other. 
So as you affect one area, it's going to do something else in some other areas. And that's why it's, it's always this kind of difficult back and forth. Uh, and I think that the American population, what they'll vote for in general tends to be uh, whatever the sociological elements that are like the highest and the most brought to surface at the time, that's what they're going to vote on. So that's why I do think social media has become such a huge tool uh, that both sides, in fact, even outside sources all wield when it comes to deciding how, how we're going to make decisions about our own government, the more misinformation they can put out there or the more that they can emotionally charge things towards an agenda that they want, the more effective it's going to be. It doesn't necessarily matter about what the truth well, is. That's true. Chris, I want to, um, I, I want to go back to the thing about foreign <laughs> languages. That's okay. Sorry, Bill, I'm hijacking your show. Um, I, uh, so it, it, it may not be apparent, um, but I am fluent and literate. No kidding. Wow. I taught myself. So I thought maybe you guys might be interested in knowing more yeah. about China internally. Uh, so I figured I would offer myself up um. there. <laughs> well, I would actually love – now, when it comes to the the Taiwan, since that's in particular, since you were talking about I'd love to hear kind of a more Chinese perspective on that one because I'll be honest with you guys. I actually lost a bet uh, when Biden took office. Some of my old friends and I, we said, you know what? Because of the administration change and then when we saw what happened with the Afghanistan pullout, we said when the Afghanistan pullout did what it did and it went down the way it did – we said it's either going to be Ukraine or Taiwan, but something's going to get – there's going to be a move made because now's the time to do it. I actually voted it was going to be Taiwan. I really did think that was going to be the one that was going to happen. Um, I wasn't expecting Ukraine to hit uh, as drastic as it did. And I also agree with your assessment that I think that – I almost think that Taiwan probably would have escalated further had Ukraine not happened because it would have probably given them a little bit more opportunity – to, to test the waters, but when they did see that America was going to throw a lot of money behind it, it made them at least be like, ah, maybe we just wait a little bit longer. That's my assessment. I don't know if it's accurate. So, but I'd love to hear the perspective on China. Well, obviously there's going to be two perspectives. There's going to be the government's perspective and the citizen's perspective. Right. The, to the best of my understanding, the citizen's perspective is it's irrelevant because COVID destroyed the economy and the trade war that Trump started with China destroyed the economy and Evergrande destroyed the economy and the lack of population growth is destroying the economy and private for-profit education is destroying the economy. There's a lot of factors going against China being successful in the long term. Xi Jinping is exacerbating the entire thing. So the individuals are not concerned with Taiwan. There might be a portion of, Chinese, of the Chinese population that is brainwashed to a point that they're nationalistic enough to go, yeah, Taiwan's part of China. But I would say the vast majority of educated Chinese people are well enough aware of the macro situation to go, this is irrelevant. We can't afford to survive. We can't afford to have children. We can't afford to buy properties. And our future looks quite bleak, economically speaking, because we just we don't have the opportunity that we did five or 10 years ago. 
the government's perspective is, and maybe the government at large disagrees with Xi Jinping because this is this is one of Xi Jinping's personal goals is to reclaim Taiwan, just like he did with Macau and, and Hong Kong, right? He succeeded in those two. Xi Jinping desperately wants Taiwan because like Putin, he desires enlargement. He desires the glory of reclaiming what was once lost at the cost of anything else. So Putin and Xi are very similar in their desires. It's extremely obvious. And I think one of the only reasons why Xi has not attacked Taiwan yet is because he doesn't believe China has the capability to beat the U.S. in a one-on-one -on -one war. However, he's putting significant resources into developing the capabilities to have a fighting chance. At the same time, she is extremely intelligent and, and very careful. However, he's also made some really stupid decisions that have really negatively impacted the population and the economy, which is quite interesting to me how he would allow himself to make those decisions however he's also he's also guided by the mm -hmm. hand of Mao Zedong he his father was a close ally in the early days and so Xi Jinping is considered a princely however his father was purged and and she did spend some time in the villages away from Beijing um, and so he he did to get to see both sides. He got to see the love of Mao and he got to see the wrath of Mao. But in his eyes, he believes that Mao Zedong, a, a single totalitarian leader who has complete control over everything in the country, is the only way to lead the country. And therefore, I believe like Putin, he has lost the group of people around him that would tell him he's wrong this because he's purged them all. And so he is currently making, so he's currently making harsh decisions that are probably not based on fact anymore. And so he desperately wants Taiwan. He doesn't have the capability to, to fight that war. And he's trying to harass Taiwan as much as he can, and he's trying to see how Ukraine happens with uh, how Ukraine and Israel continue. And if you were, uh, since you're military intelligence, you probably have seen that China has made it clear that they support Hamas, not Israel, even though Hamas provides no value whatsoever to China, economically speaking. But Israel was a huge trade partner for China. A lot of Israelis did business in China for a very long time. Israel and China had a very positive relationship. Well, they probably destroyed that. Justin just saying we, we support Hamas. So China is at a very, very strange point in the world, in its, in its history, because its population is falling apart. Its economy is falling apart from multiple points, uh, from multiple angles. And you have this leader that's out of touch with the world, desperately clinging to power, probably dealing with assassination attempts all over. There's probably a massive amount of infighting. We'll never hear about any of it. And he just keeps saying, I want Taiwan. He, at the same time, I'm not sure if you saw the most recent mm -hmm. map that came out from China. 
where they added a 10th dashed line, <laughs> which encompasses Taiwan. They're also adding, uh, they're also adding, or they're taking away land from Bhutan. They're taking away land from Nepal and just going, you know, this is our land. now. They're taking away land from uh, Northeastern India and they're just basically bullying the hell out of everyone. They're even taking land from Russia uh, near Vladivostok, okay. Vladivostok, like the northeastern region of China. Yeah, from the seaports area. Yeah. They're also building uh, land all over, mm -hmm. or they're building islands all across the, right. the South China Sea. Um, they're harassing the Philippines. They're harassing Vietnam. They're harassing all their neighbors. They're just bullying everyone. And then you get to the Belt and Road Initiative, where they're plunking trillions of dollars into basically economically trapping a uh, hundred countries around the world into debt by offering them infrastructure solutions that they pay for, but for which is not properly developed, which is crumbling, and for which those countries right. are in debt and Sri Lanka is the first country to collapse economically due to their debt to China. And so what's happening is a lot of countries, oh, and, and, and on top of that, there's this thing called wolf warrior diplomacy, where basically China was bullying people politically. They, so they, they were publicly coming out and going, oh, you know, you shouldn't be saying that about China, you know, trying to force governments into supporting China. They did this with um, uh, the WHO, they basically uh, bribed the, the World Health Organization into not uh, investigating mm. COVID properly. And with so the, there's just so many things that China is doing. And uh, I just, I see it as a house of cards. I can't see it going on. I, I can't see it lasting. I don't know how much yeah. longer it will, but. I would agree with a lot of that. And actually one of, because of what some of the things you're saying, one of the areas that uh, you might, they might be trying to do then is as they're pushing these, small scale kind of bullying tactics as you described it into certain areas um, in a way they're almost probably trying to goad the united states into actually committing somewhere else again on a full scale uh, uh, initiative that way if we're fully committed to something we won't have as much available to actually try and counter what they might try to do and i think that one element actually was something that was taken into consideration when the ukraine war kicked off uh, it was not outside the realm of feasibility to consider if we we're going to be sending American forces in, but the decision was made against it. And I think that was probably made correctly because as long as our forces are not actively partaking in certain areas and are available for deployment to areas where they could be needed, that means if that's the safeguard, that's keeping a lot of the kind of aggression of certain areas down. Mm. Um, but it's scary because like you said, with that house of cards kind of concept too, uh, when time becomes a factor, that's when people start pushing harsher agendas, bigger mistakes, and sometimes even things that we can't, you know, recover from. So if they're internally dealing with a lot of stuff and then they need something external to try and reignite it, that could create a need for them to try and do something that would end up being uh, something that would require response, not maybe not even just from the United States. At that point, it might be something that could involve uh, UN or even NATO. So there, there is a time factor to this because, uh, as you may have become aware recently, the Chinese uh, population census numbers kind of became more clear. Uh, I believe they, 
they had to revise their numbers wow. downward like 100 million people. So they basically lied for the last like decade or two about how many people they had. And so uh, I believe they, they claimed that like the first time they actually lost, uh, they, their population shrank was I think a year ago or two years ago. Um, assuming right. we could even believe that, it could be even worse. So China has a massive, uh, they have a massive army of people that have no experience whatsoever in combat. And the number of people are shrinking. So they have a short period of time, and by short I mean several decades max, to make a move to replenish their population. So some of the things that they've done to try to fix this is they banned for-profit education because people were spending a significant amount of their um, uh, extra income, uh, 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 income dispensable the, income, the name for disposable, the but they were taking money that they, yes. So they were taking a massive amount of their disposable income to pay for after school classes for their children <clears throat> to allow the children to have a chance of having an edge against the others. Because on average every year they were having up to 5 million people taking a test to enter the college, to enter colleges around the country. And so you have this, um, this issue where the more you spend, the, the perception was the more you spend, the larger the gap might be between your child and another child. And so the government said, well, in order for us to get people to want to have more children because we're fucked, we need to get rid of for-profit <laughs> education because that's where people are spending their money. Well, guess what? The response was nothing, nothing changed. All they did was destroy an industry. One of the, the problems that caused this was the one-child policy. The one-child policy put them in a position where they didn't have enough people, they didn't have enough children per family to replenish the population. Right. So there there wasn't they, they weren't at least keeping or they not every family had a child, but if you had a child, you you only had one person coming into each family. And so after a long enough period of time, you basically collapse your economy because you, I guess the number is 2.1. You need to have at least two children for every two adults in order to keep things going. And so you see Japan, South Korea, United States, a number of countries are having this problem now. And so uh, the one child policy kicked that off. And at some point during this, in the last 15 years, the women of China started to have a personal awakening and a desire to be, uh, to have their own careers, to travel, to make their own money, kind of what, uh, you know, women experienced in America starting several decades earlier. So uh, on top of that, because of the one child policy, there were less women being born because if you can only have one, you want someone that will bring a woman into your family, then have your child, your female child, leave your family, right? So it wasn't like having a child was a disgrace, but it was an economic waste. Right, having a, a female child, you're going to put money into this child, and the child, when they get older and have uh, and get married, they're going to leave your family and go live with the other family. So they're going to bring value to the other family, but you're going to waste your money. And this created an imbalance and forced the, the parents of the male to create a dowry to the point that 
I have a friend who ended up giving his wife for a dowry. She's from Shanghai. He gave her a million dollars U.S. in cash, and he bought her a house in in Shanghai, which was also a, nearly a million dollars. Now that he's quite wealthy personally, and her family, she was even wealthier than him. But that was the dowry he had to pay to 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 you know become her husband. And so, uh, everyone bought property in China because you needed a house and a car. To woo a woman, to marry her, to tell her family, I can take care of your, you know, your your child. I can give her a child. I can I can provide. So you have all of this money going into you know these these ridiculous things. Uh, so so you have this one child policy. You end up having more women than men. The women are seen as e- economically unviable. But then at some point, the women decide, you know what, we do have value. We're going to have our own careers. We are going to grow and, and do our own things. And so now you have less marriages. Because women are putting off marriage to promote their own careers, like you see across the world, and you see less children being born, and you see the the cost of living skyrocketing, but the co- but the salaries not rising to match that, and so the cost of giving birth to a child is is untenable, and so the government at that point decides you can now have two children, to which people go, we can't even afford one. Why are we going to have two? And then the government says you can have three, and then COVID happens, and people start dying, and so the population is absolutely fucked. There is I I cannot see a way for them to get out of the the trap that they've created for themselves. And I was saying even in 2008 when I first got to China, you know, obviously I'm I'm an individual person. I have no way to tell the government what to do. But in my head, like. I could see the problem in 2008, and I was like, guys, why don't you just let them have as many kids as they want, right? Because in 2008 things were different. You could afford to have a second kid at that time, but now it's impossible. So China basically has a a massive time bomb that has already gone off. It's impossible to fix, and so the number of children is dwindling. And Taiwan is a way for them to try to fix the problem. So if you can bring all of those people from Taiwan into the Chinese kind of sphere, then you can hope to replenish the population. Like Russia was taking Ukrainian kids and forcibly removing them and putting them into Russia to try to re, you know, build their population despite losing over half a million of their own young male citizens uh, because of the war with Ukraine. So China is absolutely desperate. And, and screwed, and multiple fronts, economically, financially, politically. People, mm-hmm. a lot of countries don't trust them anymore because of all the shit they've pulled. So I'm surprised and she's still alive, well, to be honest. Xi Jinping, because he's caused a lot. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Xi Jinping lot. now pretty much is uh, is going to be uh, whatever it is he is. What do they call him? President or 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 chairman or whatever uh, whatever his job title is. He's our he's our dear leader, dear leader for life. He's yeah, I was going to say now that he's dear leader for life, the the for life part, um, that you know, I mean that I mean he does he's not desperate to stay in power, um, so he can pretty much be emboldened to do whatever he feels he needs to to create his his legacy, if you will. Um, so yeah. I think he's fighting for his life. I think okay. there's a number of people trying to kill him. So he might be leader, right. but that doesn't mean it's forever. I, I, I yeah. think him and Putin okay. both have their days numbered. Wow. 
Well, one thing that we've certainly seen is true is the most dangerous uh, time to corner a wounded animal or the most yeah. dangerous time to corner an animal is when they're wounded. So, you know, when they finally feel like they're backed into certain corners, just given the nature of both of these kinds of uh, leaders, it's more likely they're going to lash out rather than capitulate and fold. So I do think that uh, we're going to see some, some interesting moves. I think that the, and I actually, I know a lot of people tend to put a lot of it on the United States, but believe it or not, I actually think that the majority of what's going to take place as far as the counter moves will be uh, coming out of Europe. If the European uh, countries that make up, especially NATO, but uh, the United Nations and a lot of these areas, if they can move together with a singular purpose to counter some of these moves, I think you'll see them have minimal effect and it will eventually just kind of fizzle away because there's just uh, too much opposition to some of those those elements. But um, the question there is, I mean, just to be blunt and direct is what's the gain for the Europeans if they get involved on that scale? Because they're not tied to a lot of the things that we are. So they're, no they're tied through us, right? There's really, there's not a lot for them to want to get involved other than just to see it not explode. And I think that a lot of the countries, especially on the economic side, are trying to detach themselves from the United States dollar uh, simply because since we are involved on so many different areas in this that if something blows up and we end up having to respond to it, I don't think they want to have to go down with the ship kind of thing. Uh, and I think we do have some good allies that we'd be able to depend on uh, regardless of what's going on because we're very, uh, very mutually driven about a lot of our elements. But as a whole, I don't know if you'll see the European Union as a whole do that. And I actually, uh, given the nature of uh, my latest work, which actually is an eschatology, um, it's interesting that one of the things that might very well be needed on the world scale uh, is like we had kind of alluded to in the initial stages is an, an, uh, an orator or a narrator or an individual who can actually unite a lot of these different elements together for a common cause. And what's scary is uh, biblically speaking, that's actually something that they said is going to take place, but it's not a good person in the Bible story. So <laughs> uh it's interesting because it's it's just it's weird to see how uh, it does all come back to the the more we have shrunk mm -hmm. our ability to communicate as a world, uh, the more we are finding that the differences that we used to be able to tolerate because of distance are now becoming forefront, and a lot of these things aren't going to get resolved with uh, mm -hmm. you know people just kind of talking it out. I don't think Europe is going to do anything. I think Europe, the, I think each of the individual European countries don't have strong enough economies or militaries to do anything and any anywhere. And I think collectively they don't have the willpower to get together in a meaningful way. They struggle to support each other at the EU level. <laughs> and Macron has tried desperately since he became president of France to advocate for a stronger European Union, something that's more cohesive, that's more structured. And the general consensus from the other Euro the other countries was, eh, that's not. And Germany, you know, uh, uh, Merkel was that order 
she was that advocate for a strong Europe. Right. And she's gone. And I don't think we're going to see a replacement for her anytime soon. I think some people hoped that Olaf Scholz would take over for her, but he just doesn't have that same mm. skill. And he's doing a lot to actually damage Germany. Yeah, I, I don't agree that he, I don't know. I don't think he means to, but he is. Yeah, I don't know if there's. I, I agree that of all the world leaders that we see in Europe right now, I don't know if who I would say, hey, this person's got the ability to unite them all. I don't know if that exists right now. But I do know that if you can, again, since we were talking about kind of an outside uh, cause, I do see a, a potential with the pieces that are already in place that there might be an outside cause that starts forcing Europe to try and move in that direction. Uh, and that actually is the fact that still a good portion of the energy resources that is consumed mm -hmm. by Europe still comes from Russia. And I think that as Israel has been really ramping up their uh, their energy production, especially in the world of natural gas, um, there's a real possibility that they could even start moving the needle about how they can supply uh, the needs even of Europe. And I think they're even talking about building a pipeline through, uh, through Cyprus or through one of the areas. But if it got to the point where Israel is fully capable of doing that, and it would end up making a bit of a challenge for Russia, because one of the things Russia has right now is their kind of counter to a lot of the European uh, and potential involvement is their ability to turn off the gas. But if the gas can now be gotten from an outside source, specifically Israel, uh, that could change things politically. So it is, I mean, again, but this is when we do this hypothesis of these what ifs, uh, there's a lot that goes into it. And I, I really do appreciate your breakdown of, uh, of the Chinese perspective, because again, as someone, I've never been to China, even though I've been to a lot of places, never been there. Um, and I do know that Taiwan, not just for the population, but also for, uh, like you had mentioned earlier, their, their, uh, their industry around, uh, especially with technology is massive yeah. and that's their only they could incorporate that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically why they, that's how they survive. And if that were to get incorporated and folded into uh, the Chinese. That's realm also of sphere, dangerous. It's no, also I agree. The, one of the reasons why the U S is so interested in Taiwan is because it hasn't mm -hmm. built up its own semiconductor technologies yet. Even though Biden uh, pledged $50 billion to support companies that want to build their fabs in the u.s having china specifically control taiwan would be dangerous because china could decide who it wants to let have semiconductors mm -hmm. china is so so think about this then from the other point of view china's incensed because if the u.s builds up its own technologies and prevents china from having taiwan and prevents china mm -hmm. from building its own technology basically the u.s decides China's ability to evolve itself. <laughs> so oftentimes as Americans, we do a great job of going, we're the good guys, you're the enemy, you're, you know, you're the bad guy. But oftentimes Americans don't have the ability to see from the other point mm -hmm. of view why this is happening. So I, I almost hate to do this because it's going on right now. I'm Jewish. I've been to Israel multiple times. I do not speak Hebrew. I have family in from Israel. I I think the entire thing is absolutely fucked up. 
from both sides. I understand why Hamas attacked Israel. I understand mm -hmm. why Israel is responding in this way. But if Israel didn't treat Gazans like dirt, they probably wouldn't have been willing to allow Iran to fund them and turn them into terrorists so that then they could attack Israel. So I can see from both points of view, without having any sort of emotional attachment to either side, I can appreciate why both sides are doing things. And, I, and I, that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in, in many other countries, because I can see why Poland is doing what it's doing. It's scared of Russia. I can understand why Russia did what it did to Ukraine. It's scared of NATO. I can understand why China is doing what it is in Taiwan. It's scared of the U.S. controlling its semiconductor abilities, right? Everything goes back to cause and effect. And if the U.S. didn't do that in Taiwan, China might not be so afraid. If NATO didn't try to expand, Putin may not be so afraid, right? So all of these conflicts have a root cause and therefore they have a response and an effect. Mm -hmm. So as long as we keep doing the things we're doing, we will cause other things to happen to yeah. us. That's, that's so, human history. Right. And so <laughs> if, if anyone listening gets anything out of anything I've said, it's before you make an assumption about anything, yeah. try to understand the other side because you will then see why this is happening and therefore why you feel this right. way and therefore why they feel that way. I would agree. You do have to, and actually it's the intelligence community. That's actually rule number one. That's intelligence 101. Yeah. Emotion leaves the room. It's just cause and effect. We're going to look at the chess game for what it is. Uh, I mean, if you go back to even September, uh, let, let's go to December 7th, mm -hmm. 1941, you know, Pearl Harbor, Japan didn't wake up one day and say, you know, what would be a great idea. Out of the blue, I think what we should do is just go sink as many ships as we can for the American fleet. There was a purpose and a cause and a reason. And part of that was actually some of the sanctions we had put on Japan. So they were in a, a pickle where they said, look, we have enough resources to basically either capitulate to all the demands of everybody else who's making them of us, or we can go to war. And we have enough resources to fight a war on a small scale for a short period of time, very aggressively. And if you look at their opening valleys or volleys of fire, that's exactly what they did. As quickly as possible, take out the main targets and then expand to the areas that you need. That's why they hit Borneo. That's why they hit the Philippines. They, they were hitting all the areas right. that had natural resources that they didn't have so that they can control those. And then they could grow themselves. And then after that, it just turned into, okay, great. Now let's guard what we got. But in context of trying to sink the American fleet and starting September, uh, excuse me, starting December 7th, you've got the problem of the Americans are going to respond. And in that response, we won. On the same note with September 11th, when that all happened, you know, yes, the, the economics of the whole thing and what it did to the, the, the loss of life is something that as the receivers of that attack, we definitely know the victimization of that it caused. But the initiating factors, why they did it, have things that go all the way back to even when we were uh, mm -hmm. divvying up the Middle East amongst ourselves as the world powers that won World War II. To include Israel itself, Israel being a nation didn't even happen until 1948, and it was voted into place. That's the only time that's ever happened in history. Someone said, yeah, we're going to vote this new country into existence. Never happened before. So, I mean, there's all these causes 
and you're, you're, you're spot on. If you're not willing to look at the whole picture about why people are doing the way that they are, you're just going to react. If all you're ever doing is reacting, you're never going to gain anything because you're never going to build. You're just going to keep reacting to whatever happens. Wow. Yeah. Um, true. Yeah. The, yeah. Cause and effect. It's uh it's a bitch. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I was, well, yeah, if you if you look at cause and effect, you can see wor mm -hmm. World War One caused World War Two, right? Right. It, World it, War Two caused all the stuff we've been dealing with now. Yeah, yeah. World War Two caused the Cold War. It caused the space race. It caused yeah Ukraine. Yeah, <laughs> it caused all of these things. It did. It caused yeah. the Israeli conflict that's going on right now. Well, well if Israel wasn't anyway. a nation. <laughs> That actual conflict goes all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael. <laughs> well, you, know, you got to remember Israel's. Well, it's yeah, yeah, exactly. It goes all the way back to the original sons of Ad, of uh, Abraham. So, um, it's interesting that you know these these things. It's just that's the whole point is that human history. Everybody seems to think we're just kind of here and we'll get by and you live and you die, you have some kids. And in the meantime, just have as much fun as you can. But the reality is a lot of the choices that get made, even in our lifetimes today, these are yeah. the things that our ancestors are going to be dealing with. Yes, indeed. I, I have, I, I feel mm -hmm. very negative about the future and it scares me to, mm -hmm. to bring children into the world. But then I watch Star Trek and I think, well, maybe if my kids can survive, maybe in a few hundred years, it won't be so bad anymore. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can find a way through it. Maybe it requires a World War III. Maybe it requires a nuclear holocaust. But hopefully right. we can figure I've it seen, out. Uh, I've seen uh, Dr. Shane's love, so I don't think the nuclear holocaust is going to help. <laughs> well, if we get rid of the majority of Well, it's interesting because it's kind of ingrained into us personally, like human beings, just in general, we always kind of have this innate concept that somehow or another, everything mm -hmm. that is, is going to come to an end somehow. We all know that. And if, like, if you ask people, you know, Hey, do you think that the, the world is going to end? Most of them will actually say, yeah, I think so. And then if you ask them in your lifetime, no, but the thing is that's been the view of anybody who's held any position on this planet since it was created. So I it's, think it's, it's I think so I'm only a few years younger than you. Um, I I don't think you're a millennial though. I, I think you you're like the end of the Gen X line. Yeah. I'm in that weird cusp <laughs> area where I don't get along with anybody. Yeah, the millennials don't like us. The baby boomers don't like us. I think they called us Gen X for a little bit, but even then Gen X kind of got dissected into a different category. So all I can say is I grew up at a time period where the technology was changing enough that I was able to grow with it for a while, make sense of a good portion of it where most of my parents couldn't. You know, most of the older generation were like, this stuff's beyond us, it's just moving too fast. Uh, but then at the same note, when it comes to things like work ethics and values and a lot of the things that are kind of more predominant in the older generation, I still carry a lot of that. So it's it's interesting that I kind of, all I call myself is the outcast of both sides. Because... Okay. <laughs> so I, I, I feel... I'm I'm one of the oldest millennials. Um, I, I don't identify with Gen X at all, but I also don't even come close to identifying with Gen Z. I, they're very strange. Um, <laughs> a little, yeah, they're special. So, 
I feel like my I feel like my generation is the first generation that honestly believes we cannot have we cannot give our children better mm. lives than the lives we've had. And I think we also might believe that the world isn't going to end, but our way of life will end in our lifetime. Yeah. The, the world's not going to end. Humans are just not going to maybe be around or there'll be less humans. No. Mm-hmm. Right. The world will be fine without humans. The world was fine before yeah. us. It'll be fine after yeah. we're gone. And, unless something happens very soon. I That's think, true. I think, I, I uh, think people yeah. are naive to assume I think humans are naive to assume that our existence is permanent. I would agree. Anybody who thinks that, you know, because it's, we've got too much evidence of entire species that yeah. have come and gone to well, think that we're not going to We also safe. individually, mm-hmm. um, and I think corporately too, we have this view that we are invincible. Um, I mean, until, uh, until the person gets hurt, you know, real bad, um, you know, I mean, whether it's breaking a leg or um, I caught fire. That was uh, that was how I learned I wasn't invincible. Um, you know, it's like we have this idea that we're we're immortal and, and invincible. That'll do it. We can do anything, and and all you got to do is uh, is look at one of these uh, compilations on YouTube of people doing these crazy things, and it's like you know they think they're indestructible. You know, and uh, and they're going to do all this crazy stuff. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, and I think corporately we have kind of that same idea that, you know, the United States is always going to be the United States. It hasn't always been as it is, and it certainly won't always be as it is. Um, you know, but we have this idea that, you know, it's like, oh, civil war is a crazy idea. It's uh, it's never going to happen. And that's not necessarily true. Um you know, it happened once. It yeah, happened that's once. what people said and, right until uh, the 1960s. Um, you know, but uh, um, the civil war all is happening the time. in countries all around the world all the time. All the time. There's actually a lot yeah. of them happening that happened yeah. this year. And so, uh, so yeah, so I think we need to, I think we need to wise up. Um, you know, realize uh, that uh, um, that for all these countries in the world, you know, whether it's China or Russia. You know, China, especially right now, we're kind of painting them in the in the corner. Like you said, Sean, uh, we're trying to keep them from making their own semiconductors. We're trying to keep them from taking over Taiwan, and we're trying to create our own semiconductors. Um, you know, we're painting them into a corner. And Xi Jinping is uh, is looking and saying, "I've only got so much time to be able to do what I want to do and and be the be the next Mao." perhaps as part of what his, uh, his, his brain is telling him, um, you know, and so they may not have the time to, uh, to wait to do something. So who knows what, uh, um, what will come next? Uh, you know, people could become so desperate to keep things the way they are that we end up, uh, in some kind of uh, major world conflict and, uh, and hopefully it won't be nuclear because, uh, I've seen some of the, uh, some of the projections on that, and it's it's bad. Um, if uh, if it comes to that, um, but uh, um, but yeah. Um, so we we've been doing this for quite a while. So uh, um, I was going to say, let's uh, let's go ahead and close on that positive note. <laughs> Did you have something uh, something to say, Sean? I, I thought I, I think I heard you you click. I was going to say. Uh... The best thing you can do for yourself now is buy some <laughs> land, learn how to farm, learn how to hunt, yeah. learn how to be self-sufficient. Yeah, 
Self sufficiency is always a good thing. Yeah, we got. I mean, we only got a quarter acre, but uh, but it's enough to to plant a little garden and stuff. So, and my brother wants me to, wants to take me out hunting. So, uh, so we'll get all that going. <laughs> not not too much opportunity to hunt in uh, Vegas. Just le yeah. learn how to use bows and arrows. Learn learn how to use the right. analog yeah. technology. Yep. I've got my uh, I've got my machete and uh, I'm gonna get uh, gonna get a bow and arrow. So <laughs> yeah, I think I missed. You'll run out of bullets, but you won't run out of arrows. wood yep. to make that bow, is the uh, truth. Make, uh, arrows. So um, so with that, um, yes, uh, always look on the bad side of life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, do you gentlemen have any final words for the nice people? That's right. Shout out to Monty Python. Yeah. This has been a master class in, in fatalism. So God bless to all you guys. And, uh, you know, the only thing I would say is my parting gift for everybody is very simply granted. There's a lot going on, but if you're more worried about what's going on in the white house, than you are what's going on in your house. then you've already yeah. kind of lost your ability to influence anything. You got to focus on keeping yourself straight, your family straight. And uh, so I agree with Sean's assessment, you know, just start finding ways to make sure that you're focusing on how am I going to be okay? How's my family going to be okay? Work on that first. And then from there, uh, you know, trust me, the world's problems will be there when you, whether you right. like it or not, they're going to oh, be uh, there. So. Uh, Sean, before we get to your final words, uh, I almost forgot to, to promote your stuff again. Um, Sean, your website is welivetobuild.com. Is that right? Okay. And uh, people can go there. Yeah. I'll leave the link yep. in the uh, description so people can find it real easily. Um, but uh, you can go over there to find his podcast. There's a blog and uh, and all of his business uh, stuff uh, over there. Um, you know, hire him and, uh, and get your business going. Um, and then, Chris, yours is... Uh, chrisfwalker.com correct okay and uh we will uh, you got it we'll have the link to yours in there and that's where people can find your yep. books they can find my books Sweet. we've got some training programs we've done uh actually even sean might even appreciate one of the ones during COVID. i even did a, a kind of an entrepreneurial video training segment nice. just to kind of be like here's the basics of how to get a business started cool. so okay yeah, and, and uh, yeah so all that stuff will be in the description um, and, and I think we've had an absolutely awesome show. Um, I don't think we've gotten so deep into uh, in an international politics uh, and history uh, as we have uh, as we have today. Um, and then Sean, what are your thoughts for the nice people? Sean started. <laughs> Sean started it. As I said earlier, this has been a masterclass in fatalism. I, I it's easy. It's it's easy <laughs> to be negative. It's hard to be positive, and that's part of the issue yeah. we have with global communications these days, especially with social media, where I could be in Portugal and, and hear about something that yeah. happened in China minutes after it happened. Mm -hmm. And so it's the hardest thing to do is to take in all of that information and go, eh, I'm going to keep living my life. If we keep allowing things to... Mm -hmm affect us emotionally, it'll be yeah. impossible for us to stay sane. So 
just think about that the next time something somebody says something or you hear about something and you want to respond to it emotionally try to take a step back and think of it, think it through before you you direct yeah. your your emotions towards okay. it yeah to others good uh, wise words uh, wiser words were never spoken um <laughs> i'd like to uh, i'd like to thank both of my guests uh, for being on um and uh, and putting up with uh, with these shenanigans um and uh, i'd like to thank you all for tuning in and uh, and listening to us this was a heavy hit a heavy hitting show so uh, um yeah so thanks uh, remember to uh, be safe out there wash your hands and stay tuned for the closing credits Thank you all for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Bald Spots Productions. I'd like to thank our producer, my beloved mother, Eileen Hatch. I, of course, am your humble host. I'd like to thank my special guests, Chris Walker and Sean Weisbrot. Support the show if you feel so led over on Patreon.com. We're known as Bald Spots Pro. Don't you dare miss YWL Online. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and wherever fine podcasts are offered. Be sure to tune in next time when my special guest will be Steve Bates. Be sure to like, comment, and share. You know, subscribe, follow, whatever it is you've got to do to kick that algorithm into gear and help us reach more people. If you or someone you know needs support now, call or text 988 or chat 988lifeline.org. That is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline here in the United States.